Good morning. morning. It's good to be here. Am I on? Yes, I think I'm on. That's great. When it comes to learning history, what do you think of? Do you think of a classroom, a lecture theatre, a pile of rather serious-looking books? In ancient Israel, when you thought of learning history, you thought of listening to stories. It was more like sitting around the fire than sitting at a desk. For ancient Israelites, history wasn't just about learning about facts and dates. History was not merely information, but instruction. It didn't only tell you what had happened, it told you what happens, what could happen, what would happen, what should happen. So this morning, we're going to try and learn like ancient Israelites. Instead of standing at a lectern and pontificating, (laughs) I'm going to sit and try and tell you the story. I won't ask if you're sitting comfortably, (laughs) uh, because some of this is not comfortable. It's very challenging. Tells that in the midst of very dark days in the history of Israel, there came a dramatic day of decision. The high point of Israel's history was the reign of their second king, King David, and the initial part of his son's reign, his successor, Solomon. Those were the glory days. But after Solomon's reign ended, tragedy struck, the nation divided. And they started the long, slow, almost relentless decline in their spiritual health, their national security, and their well-being. The pattern of decline took a decisive turn for the worse when King Ahab became king of Israel. He was the worst king they had had up to that point. And they'd had some bad kings. In the last episode, last week, you encountered, like Ahab had, the wild man of a prophet called Elijah, who confronted the king and told him that God had said, enough. There would be no more rain until the man of God declared there would be rain. So month after month, the nation experienced drought. Severe, life-threatening, famine-inducing drought. We now continue the story. And if you want to check out the facts as they're recorded, it's 1 Kings 18, 16 to 40, but... This morning, I just want you to listen. It all starts when Elijah sends a message to Ahab and says, "Um, come and meet me. He had been difficult to find for three years. In fact, Ahab had heard rumors he was over here or over there. And whenever he went, Elijah wasn't there. But now Elijah, after three years, sends a message. I will meet with you. Come meet with me which is 
ironic, really, isn't it? Because kings summon people to them. And it's the irony of this situation that this man, who had all the trappings of power and status, had to go and find Elijah. And so he goes, you can imagine he went not on his own, but with his retinue, his bodyguards, his counselors, the army in the background. He came dressed in robes of regal splendor. Everything said that he was powerful and important. And he comes to Elijah, who had the dress sense of John the Baptist. (laughs) In fact, John modeled himself on his great (laughs) hero. He had nothing, when you looked at him, to say he was a man of significance. But he is that man. Because he's God's man. Ahab, you can imagine, arrives frustrated and angry. And he says, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I can imagine on his high horse, looking down at this scruffy individual. I've not made trouble for Israel, but you and your family have. You abandoned the Lord's commands, and now you have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal And the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. There's going to be a showdown. It's going to be the battle of the gods. Baal and Asherah were two of the Canaanite gods. Canaanite religion was known for its gross immorality and injustice. It was horrific even in the ancient world. When need was acute, they would sacrifice their own children to entice their gods to intervene. And the people of Israel had compromised with gods like that. The battle of the gods. The battle of the bands. The battle of dads. I remember when our children were quite small... We went to see their cousins, and uh, we learned about a conversation they had between the cousins. They were, you know, so high. It was about how powerful their dads were. <laughs> and especially that is typified in how cross they could get. <laughs> oh, my dad gets really cross. Our dad shouts and goes red. When he gets cross, it mounted and mounted and mounted until the coup de grace. Said, when my dad gets cross, the walls shake. <laughs> More than the walls are going to shake in the contest that's about to happen. Idolatry is never just a religious thing. In the Old Testament, idolatry always leads 
to immorality and injustice. Read the prophets. They come against not only idolatry, but immorality and injustice. And the truth is, what happened, happens. In any culture, which of those three trinity of evils comes to the fore? The one you notice most changes. So some cultures you can go and you think, oh, they're an idolatrous people. They have idols, you can see them. Some cultures you go to and you say, oh, it's injustice, it's rife, you can see it. In some cultures, it's immorality. But behind immorality and injustice is always a root problem of idolatry. Who you worship affects how you live. And the god Baal was the storm god. He was supposed to be in charge of the weather. So for three years they'd been crying out to Baal for rain to come. And rain hadn't come because the prophet of the true God had said it's not going to come. And not only was he the storm god and the god of rain and weather, he was the god of lightning and fire. So that suggested what the contest would be about. So representatives of the whole nation came to Mount Carmel. Carmel is a range of mountains that stretch from the coast, the Mediterranean coast, in the northwest of Israel, right on the border, and stretch inland. This probably, this event, where they got summoned, probably at the western end, near the sea, because uh, they're going to need some water in a moment, and it's been drought. Where do you get water from? Well, the sea even has, always has water. Not useful to drinking, but there's water. And they probably met in the foothills, not right at the summit. And so the people gather, and Elijah presents his challenge. Addressing all the people, he says, how long will you limp between two opinions? Some translations say waver, but one of the pictures behind that word is, is like a bird hopping from one leg to another on a branch. It's like indecisive, it's not sure, it's... Limping. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Bagel is God, follow him. But don't try and do both, because most people were trying to do both. They hadn't totally rejected the God of Israel, the God who'd brought them out of Egypt, the God who'd taken them out of slavery, the God who had provided for them through the wilderness. In their minds, they were just adding. Just adding. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had, yes, had rescued them and given them security and some success, but they, were, they wanted more. And the gods of the Canaanites seemed to offer more. And they weren't so fussy about sexual morals. And they weren't so concerned with justice. So you could get away with more with a God like that. 
of God's word. If the Lord is God, follow him. You probably know, but whenever you see in the Old Testament, the Lord in like block capital, in capitals, it's not a title, it's a name. But in Israel, they were so in awe of God and his name, they wouldn't say it. But the scholars agree that his name in their language was Yahweh. If Yahweh is God, Follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But don't do pick and mix religion. It never works. It never will. You try to share the God of the Bible with any other God, and you have rejected him. However respectable that looks, however you know, polite it seems, you have followed him. And you know, idols are not just metal things. In our culture, they're mental things. Gods of success and reputation. Gods of pursuing status. Don't try and pick a mix. It leads to dark, dark days. God won't be mocked. He's incredibly patient. There had been many dark days where God had not dramatically intervened, but this day was going to be one of those days. He was going to say, this day you decide. Are you for me or for the other gods? So after many dark days comes this dramatic day for decision. What happened, happens. This could be for you. A dramatic day of decision. The God who answers with fire, he is God. The God who answers with fire, he is God. Just worth noting in passing that willful compromise leads to spiritual blindness. Willful compromise leads to spiritual blindness. Ahab could not see who was the true man of God. He didn't listen to the person who spoke God's truth. He dismissed Elijah Again and again and again, and yet he was God's person and was impressed by numbers and that would show the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah. Willful compromise leads to spiritual blindness. Why was it that the Pharisees didn't fall down on their knees and worship Jesus? Because spiritual comprom willful compromise led to blindness. It's a serious thing. And when you are blind, you can fall into a ditch. Or even worse. It happened. It happens. Don't let it happen to you. 
And so the contest is started. Being a polite prophet, he says, you go first. <laughs> you go first. And actually, you've got 850 sort of professionals to help you. So they build their altar, they kill the bull, they cut it to pieces, they lay firewood and they put it down and Elijah says, no, no matches, no flints. Now call on your God and see if he will answer with fire. And from morning to noon, they cry out, Oh Baal, answer us! Oh, Baal, answer us. Again and again, with dancing and shouting. Oh, Baal, answer us. I wondered about a reenactment of that this morning, and I thought, no, fire might fall on us if we sang that. (laughs) But they cried out. It gets to lunchtime, and Elijah comes with some friendly encouragement. Oh, prophets of Baal. Um, Maybe he's busy. You, I, you know, wives know this, don't you? Can you come and do this? Oh, I'm busy, I can't hear you. Uh, maybe he's on the loo. That's essentially the Hebrew, that's really what it implies. Maybe your God's, you know, relieving himself somewhere. You have to shout louder. Maybe he's gone out to lunch. He's on a journey. Maybe he's fast asleep. Keep shouting. You never know, you might rouse him, wake him up. And so they shout. All afternoon they shout, they dance, they scream. They take out their sharp swords and lances and pierce themselves and blood flows. Because they believe that you have to sacrifice, you have to be in pain to get your God to answer your prayers. You have to earn it in some way. You have to twist his arm. And if he's not listening... And if he's not acting, then you have to do more to get him to act. The day goes on. People are getting hoarse. People are shouting. And it says, there was no response. No one answered. So they dance some more, and they shout some more, and they scream some more, and they cut themselves some more. And it says there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Hours and hours of religious fervor and noise and dancing and nothing. And then all the attention turns away from the 850 prophets to one prophet. All eyes are focused on him. He said, come, come to me. So the people gather. And he builds in front of them an altar made of 12 stones. 12 stones because of the 12 tribes of Israel. It reminds them of the promises that God had fulfilled. The promises he made to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. It reminds them of their history and it reminds them of the tragedy that now they're no longer 12 tribes in one nation and he builds the altar 
And people kill the bull and cut it into pieces. And they put firewood to lay the pieces on. And then just to add something, he says, let's dig a trench and pour water again and again and again over the sacrifice, over the wood. So it filled the trenches. And all the time, the tension is mounting. And then instead of hours of screaming, we get this simple prayer. O Lord God, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known to me that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Short prayer. Interesting. Short prayer. Not much noise. Until what happens next. Then there's plenty of noise. He utters the prayer. And fire falls down. Fire comes, consumes not only the animal sacrifice, but the wood, the altar, the water. It licks, it says, it licks the trench dry, even consumes the dust, because God's fire has answered. It's come down from heaven. And there's stunned silence. God is here. And then it begins. Maybe with Elijah or some brave soul. And they start to say, the Lord, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And you can imagine... People who have been confused and didn't know, have clarity, they've been wandering this way and back. They know now. They know now. Now they would declare. You can, the simple, quiet prayer of the prophet is then turned into ecstatic praise. Who's God? Is Asherah your God? No. Is the Baals your God? No. Who's your God? Yahweh. Can I ask you, who's your God? Who's your God? Your God. Your God's not money, is he? No. Success is not your God. Is it? Who's your God? Doesn't sound very ecstatic. But we're English, I know. Maybe we'll do that again in a minute. Because as the people declare this, it breaks something. It breaks something. It shakes them loose of the other gods. It shakes them loose. The people that they had served and followed, do you know what happens? They are arrested. The prophets of Baal and Asherah are taken into the valley and slaughtered. They're decisively dealt with for that moment. 
Because they'd seen that the God of the Bible is the God who answers. Of all people you know, there is a God in heaven who listens. There's a God in heaven who pays attention. There's a God who answers. And his name is Yahweh. He's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that he listens to the quietest prayer and can answer the greatest need? Because he's Yahweh. He's the God of Elijah. He's the God of Mount Carmel. And if you have trusted Jesus, he is your God too. We have a God that listens. We have a God that pays attention. We have a God that answers. <laughs> there's so much, isn't there? When you read the stories of the Old Testament, one of the reasons they don't come in like textbook form is there's just so much to learn, so much you can draw out. You can ask yourself a hundred questions. You could ponder this for days. You could think about all the different characters of Ahab, who although he's got the position supposedly of power and influence, looks like really his influence by his wayward wife more than anybody else. That happens, isn't it? People in power are influenced by people behind the scenes. They make wrong choices. He made a wrong choice of who to marry. That was his, part of his wrong choice. Yeah. It happened. It happens. It could be like Jezebel manipulating, manipulating behind the scenes. You could be a prophet of Baal. People are like that. They, they pursue another agenda. You could be like the confused people of Israel who didn't quite know which way to go, although they should have known. You could be like, we don't hear about them here, but you will later, the hundred true prophets of God who were hiding and scared, who hid rather than stood with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Or you could be like Elijah, the person that God uses to bring the reality of God's presence into dark places on dark days and cause people to decision. Paul wrote, many years later in one of his letters, he said this, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. These things are written as examples and warnings. He's talking about the whole of the Old Testament, all those stories. An example and a warning. Elijah is an example of people who bring the reality of God into dark places at dark times. And there are just three things that, in my pondering, I've come up with that I just want to share with you. All this came about not on his initiative. It wasn't his idea. What happened on Carmel was not magic. It wasn't that he had a magic lamp and if he rubbed it, something would happen. It didn't come out of his thoughts. It wasn't he that started this. It was God. His prayer says... Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am simply your servant and have done all these things at your command. 
Power flows out of obedience. And obedience comes from listening. Elijah is described as a man who stood in the Lord's presence. That's like being a courtier in, in the throne room of a king, waiting to receive instructions. And then when you get the instructions, you go do it. It's not him that is powerful. In a sense, it's not even him that has the authority, but he's given it. Authority flows through him. Because God had told him to do something. And he didn't have to twist God's arm for that. He knew God had commanded that these things would happen, and the Lord just showed that I'm doing that. Listening. You want to be a person that brings the reality of God into situations and to other people? You have to listen. You have to spend time in his presence and he encourages us in worship times like this, on our own, in our home. Those that listen, hear. Those that obey, impact. It happened. It happens. Make sure this happens for you. Whenever you listen, you're on the edge of adventure. But it does take courage at times. It can take tremendous courage. I, I, there's an experiment psychologists have done where you put students in a room and uh, you throw questions up on the screen. They're simple questions. They're obvious answers. And they just have yes, no sort of answers. Just binary. What you don't know is that one person is completely innocent in this. Everybody else has been told, whatever you do, you vote for the wrong thing. And to these very simple questions, is this black or white? or Which is the shortest thing? Or is this true or false? They're just very simple, obvious answers. What happens? They would do this and the First of all, it's like, oh, that's obvious, that's right. Oh, oh, okay. But that next one's obvious. When they have run this experiment again and again, do you know what happens? People start voting with the crowd, even though it is clear and they know it's wrong. That happened. It happens. Four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal, four hundred prophets of of the Asherah, and one man. It takes courage, doesn't it? it takes courage to stand out at work. It courage takes courage to be different. Sometimes cleanliness is not next to godliness. Oddness is. <laughs> and unless you're willing to be odd, you can't do it. Some of us of my <laughs> Yeah. That's not an excuse, by the way. <laughs> Some of us who are in my generation might remember the old chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. The last verse says, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me. That's Elijah. No, none goes with me, still I will follow. I have heard his voice, I will do what he says. Though none goes with me, still I will follow. Such courage only comes when you've been in the presence of the one and only true God. 
when you've heard his voice. Breakthrough comes, but it comes usually with courage. Third lesson, before we do one warning. Notice the motive of this man. I love being proved right when I'm... If I, if I ever get in the minority, I love being... You know, like I see. I, I, and you might have been in the majority or the minority just recently with the you know, Brexit vote and, you know... And you could be going, you wait and see. It proves I was right. Whatever side you're on that debate, you know, see... Our current, either you're going to go, our economy is now flourishing two years into this thing. See, I was right. Or it might be, see, our economy is in trouble. See, I was right. Or probably it would be just about all right and we can debate who was right and who was wrong. But I, if I was here, I, if I was Elijah, I'd be going, man, see, I've got it right. I've got it right. Answer me, O oh Lord. Answer me. That these people know that I'm just your servant. And that you, O oh Lord, are God. That's his motive. I want people to know that he is God and that you are turning these willful, compromised, sinful people, you're turning their hearts back to you. Isn't that magnificent? He's motivated by God's honor and the need for people to know him. However wayward they've been. It's for them. It's not about him. And such people who listen and obey, the people who take courage in their hands, those that are motivated by God's honor and the welfare of others, those people become a catalyst for others. Elijah stood alone, but there were a hundred prophets hiding. And the people who had been shouting for the bowels to answer with fire switched and now realized that this is the true God. People who stand out in this way become the catalysts of change because although you might be very lonely, you draw other people to you. God is waiting for more people like Elijah to be the be the catalyst for God's compromised people to turn to God with fervent praise and obedience. That happened. That happens. Will you be one of those people? The example of Elijah, but here's a warning. As the story goes on, you realize that although this was a decision day, this was not decisive for Israel. The decline continues. The darker days get darker and more desperate until the nation is lost and the people go into exile. Dramatic days do not automatically lead to decisive change. Dramatic days do not always lead to decisive change because when God steps in power, it is a call, an invitation, not simply to praise him or a moment of ecstatic enthusiasm. It is a call to reorientate our lives radically 
around his values and his purposes. It's supposed to change everything. And for the nation, it didn't do that. I felt prompted to share this story. Years ago, in what some of us called the Toronto Blessing, it was a time of great sense of God's presence. And uh, there was a family, a couple that we knew. The wife had, in a sense, re-engaged with God. They come with a, a, a faith sort of background, but it wasn't a lie for them. But in the process of coming back to God, somewhere in that story, she found out her husband was being unfaithful, was in an adulterous affair. He knew he was compromised. He was right between two opinions. He was not doing well. But he came to some of the meetings. And at the end of one of the meetings, they, people stood in a line. And do you remember, do you remember those days? And you would pray for them. The sense of God's power was so, so powerful, so present, that even when I pray for people, something happened. <laughs> And I felt, I walked along the line and I felt, I'm not just going to do it in order, I think I should pray for him. So I prayed for him. And he was overwhelmed by the sense of God's presence. So much so that for him it meant he shook and in the end fell on the floor. And when he came up, he looked like a changed man and for a while he was different. A couple of weeks later I saw him and asked him how he's going. He said, it's amazing. He said, you know what? I got to the turning, I was driving, got to the traffic lights, and if I turned left, I would go to the other woman. And I confess, I, I thought about doing it, and every time I thought about it, I shook so much that I couldn't turn, I couldn't move, I couldn't drive. It was only when I decided that I would drive through the traffic light and straight on did the shaking stop. Dramatic. But it wasn't decisive. Because he returned to that adulterous affair. And the marriage broke. And I don't know where he's ended up. That happened. It happens. Don't let it happen to you. And I just feel it important to ask you. It might not be unfaithfulness to your partner. But does that make you go hot and cold? Because you know what it is about for you. And in the midst of God doing great things, and you even experiencing them, you're holding on to compromise. The God of heaven can meet the need you're trying to fill. The God of Elijah can burn up the sin in your life and refine you. But it needs you to radically reorientate your life around him. Dramatic moments in themselves are not decisive. They are his invitation to live our lives around him. So I want to ask you, who is your God? Who is your God? Who's your God? Who's your God?
That's better. <laughs>